Good morning. Thankful for the opportunity to uh, be here preaching the Word Lord, uh, to study and to prepare it. Um, thankful for Pastor Brad's patience and his guidance to me through this process. And um, also just thankful for um, a number of you who are praying for me, um, who had mentioned that, and I thank you for that. It was very, very needed. Thank you. So if you'll turn now with me to your Bibles, um, Titus chapter 2. Verses 11 to 14. It's found on page 998, or if you have a large print in front of you, it's page For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. never-failing ruler of our heart, everlasting lover of our souls. Holy Father, we praise you and we thank you that despite our offenses against you, you would seek us out. Lord God, you would set your affections upon us and you would send your Son to die for us. Lord, we just thank you for this morning, a morning to gather together in worship to you and thanksgiving. We ask now that you would speak through me, Lord God, that by your Holy Spirit you would soften our hearts to receive your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to invite you to take a trip back in time with me. Allow your imagination to be immersed in the life and times of first century Crete. Crete, a rocky island located in the eastern Mediterranean, have been dominated by the Minoan civilization for over a thousand years. Much influence and physical evidence remained from their reign at the time. But in the time of the early church, it was under Rome's rule. Being an island, Crete was a place and a people of the sea. It was an important stop on many trade routes, and as a result, was very connected with the mainland. Planting colonies, swapping cultural ideas, trading raw materials and manufactured goods, so on and so forth. Crete, littered with foreign colonies, was also home to a number of Jewish settlements. This was a place and a people synonymous with immorality. Calling someone a Cretan was considered an insult. This reputation was one that was well-earned, with sexual perversion being built directly into their religion and their worship. They were known for being greedy and valuing money over just about everything else. They even held violence and murder as an acceptable means of solving everyday problems. And all the while, they lied and they cheated. In a time devoid of morality, this was a place of particularly bad repute. 
mixed into this mosaic of filth were a number of false teachers, Christian pretenders whose lives resembled that of the culture of Crete rather than the life of Christ, who were actively teaching false doctrine. These men were seeking to destroy the church body from the inside. This is the backdrop that accompanies the book of Titus. Paul, as he writes this book, is directly urging the opposite of what the Cretan church would have seen around them, both from the culture as a whole and specifically from the false teachers. He was writing to Titus, who had been left behind on the island to put these churches in order and oversee their growth in the face of this opposition. He urges Titus and the Cretans to live lives as individuals that were radically different from the world around them. Lives of self-control, renouncing their worldly passions, not getting caught up in the way of life on the island. He also urged them as a group, corporately, to operate in a way that was different. He wrote to them about church leadership, about living together and working together, about how the old were to relate to the young and the young to the old, about how the church was to be a real community. Their lives were to demonstrate the power of salvation. They were to adorn the doctrine, as it says in Titus chapter 2. There was a purpose to their salvation and a calling that they were to walk out. As we will unpack later, this was not a cheap form of do's and don'ts that Paul was urging. He was not writing to them some form of moralism or a tacky religion, but he was writing something with real power because their salvation was something with real power. He was calling them to something greater and better and different even than what the world's standard of righteousness was. Now this society and situation that the Cretans lived in, does it sound familiar to anyone here? Absolutely. We live in a similar society with much of the same depravity. Many of the same challenges and temptations face us as we walk in our Christian life and as we seek to live faithfully and preach the gospel. Believers, we are a peculiar people. As we take a closer look at this passage, we see three things that set us apart from the world. These three things were the same for the Cretans as they are for us if we call Jesus Christ our Lord. These three things are that we have been saved by our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we are being trained by him for godliness, and we are to be waiting with great hope for his return. As we jump in here, let's turn to verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Now this grace of God that has appeared, kind of a funny phrase. How can grace appear? It's just a word. But we see here as we unpack this, that this grace carries personhood. This grace has a name, Jesus Christ. And we see the same idea repeated in future tense, confirming for us the personhood of grace if we look down at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, maybe in some ways it's too fundamental for us being reformed, or maybe we're too used to hearing it, maybe. But this grace is a free gift. It's unmerited. It's unearned. God has laid his affection upon us. He's reached down into our darkness, into this world that we call home. He has sought us out. 
He sent his son to this earth, the only true God himself who dwells in unapproachable light, who has no need of us. He sent his son down to this earth to be born of a virgin. And Jesus came willingly. He humbled himself, offering salvation to all that some would believe. This grace is not just some philosophical idea or some nice feeling. It is a person. This grace was actually manifested in Jesus Christ himself. Verse 14 says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He stood in the gap between us and God willingly. We were actually destined for destruction and eternal punishment. But he took our place. He paid your and my price. What Jesus Christ accomplished there in his death and resurrection. It accomplished something for us who believe in his holy name. By his sacrifice, he both redeemed us and he's purified us. To be redeemed is to be removed from a poor estate. Lifted up, if you will. He has brought us out of the darkness. He has removed us from our state of slavery to sin and our indebtedness in that sin. Those chains no longer bind our hearts. The weight of our sin and our shame no longer bears down. That is no longer our reality. We see this foreshadowed in the story of the Israelite exodus from Egypt. If you flip with me, please, to Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 to 7, we'll take a look. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Here we see that God removed the Israelites from their place as oppressed slaves, to be free. The weight of their physical slavery removed, their bondage and chains gone, and the suffering and pain under the Egyptians was no longer their, their reality. Jesus' work didn't stop with removing us from our predicament, though, in a sort of weird neutrality. But he went all the way, so to speak. In our salvation, he has brought us not just out of the darkness, but into the light. He has purified us. He has washed us clean and given us a new heart. He has made us his own and set us on a new course. Essentially, we have been regenerated. Our filthy, offensive state of sin that had separated us from God is gone. We are now clothed in new robes of righteousness through Christ and have been brought near to him. Similar language was used by the prophet Ezekiel as he addressed the exiled nation of Judah. Take a quick look at Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 to 28. 
I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So wrapped in here is a mix of ceremonial cleansing references for the actual people that would return from exile as well as prophecy for the new covenant believers, which is us. We see here the language used of being washed clean like taking a bath, of replacing hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. We also can't miss the nature of the relationship created by purification, seen both in Titus and here in Ezekiel. There's the definitive element of possession involved. We are God's people, and he is our God. With sin and death defeated and our bonds removed, we have been given, given life in the truest sense. Being redeemed and purified, our hearts and minds are made new as there is no longer any debt to our name. We are now his children, and with life comes new purposes. We are a people who have been loved and saved in a peculiarly beautiful way. As we've discussed, Jesus' salvation changes us. Fundamentally, truly, we are different at a heart level. As those saved by Jesus, we cannot just be believers, but must be followers now, too. Verse 12 says, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And verse 14, Who, being Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In our salvation, We must renounce and repent of our lawless deeds and wickedness, forsaking worldly passions that consume our flesh. Strong language it is to not just repent, but to renounce, to cast aside and condemn and reject that former life. He has redeemed us and purified us, and with that gives us new desires, passions, pursuits, priorities. He has freed us to passionately pursue good works. We see here that what Jesus' sacrifice accomplished for those who believe in salvation produces something. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We need to spend some time on that word, training. This word is significant for a number of reasons carries heavy implication for us in our walk of faith. It is a word and an idea that the Apostle Paul uses repeatedly in his letters to the early churches because it drove home the idea so well. Those reading the letters or hearing them would have been well aware of all that training encompassed due to the popularity of the Roman games and the training required of gladiators, runners, soldiers, etc., they would have known, just as we do, that training is not a passive improvement. One cannot simply sit on the couch, downing a dozen donuts a day for a month, and expect to hop up at the end of the month 
and run a four-minute mile or lift 1,000 pounds. Results like that would just be simply ridiculous. For anyone who has pursued anything, whether music, education, a trade, sports, etc., you know that training isn't easy. Musicians put hours into practicing, looking after and protecting their hands and their voices, studying music theory. In education, you forsake sleep to ensure that your papers are done well and on time. You go cross-eyed staring at your textbooks, making sure you're ready for your exams. You may even lose part of your social life if your classes or your placements don't line up with your friends' schedules. Or with sports, it takes a grit and a toughness to repeatedly push your body to the limits. Training day after day, removing your favorite treats from your menu so that you're properly nourished, staying home and going to bed when your friends are heading out so that you're properly recovered for the next day of training. No matter what you train for, it is not easy or effortless. There are even injuries and setbacks. One must persevere. That same work and dedication needs to be put in spiritually by us as believers. No matter what each of us has pursued, we become the product of what we are focused on and what we lend our attention and our efforts to. We are all being trained in something, passively or deliberately, through the world around us or by whatever consumes our time. Many pastimes aren't bad, but that is not the point here. The issue is our focus, our affections, and our motivations. What are we as believers being trained for? To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Three things listed here, but the focus is on godly. Godly. Godliness. This is the aim of our training, but what does it actually mean? Depending on your dictionary, you'll get something like the quality of being devoutly religious or piety or conforming to the laws and wishes of God. These definitions lend themselves to a type of moralism or Pharisee type of religiosity. But these definitions pale in comparison to the biblical meaning and understanding of the word. In scripture, and in particular in our passage here, it encompasses much more. It is deeper and richer and all the more glorifying to God. Paul is writing to these people in the midst of these direct attacks from the false teachers and in the allure of fleeting pleasures of their culture, saying, you are saved for more. He is calling them to a radical devotion to their Savior, Jesus Christ. Wrapped up in godliness is a fear or an awe of him and a deep love and an affection for him. Fear and awe because of how great he truly is and because of his awesome wrath with which he will bring down on unrighteousness of which we were or are all partakers. Love and affection because of his incredible mercy and grace that he has poured out on us through his son Jesus in redeeming us and purifying us from our sin. These two sides are held in tension in the heart of the believer, motivating us to devoted pursuit of him. Our subsequent works serve to shine a light on our great God and Savior. Our lives as believers are not for us. It is for someone greater someone better, someone so much more magnificent than ourselves. We seek to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior and do good works that others might see them and glorify our Father in heaven. All throughout this book, Paul is driving at this theme. We have been loved. We have been set apart. And as a result, we must walk in a particular manner. A manner different and set apart a peculiar manner to those on the outside. 
Our lives as Christ followers aren't choose-your-own-adventure books, but we have been saved with a specific task in mind. Our bodies, our giftings, our resources, our families, our relationships, and our time are all to be subjected to Jesus' lordship, wholly devoted. When does Paul say this is to happen? Verse 12, in the present age. There's no waiting for a better day to act, implied here. For we know not the day or the hour, and each breath we breathe and every heartbeat that beats in our chest is a gift. In this, the present age, we are to be a peculiarly godly people. Read verse 13 with me, if you will. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we jump into our last section here, we need to start with a question. What are we waiting for? Are we waiting for our next paycheck? The next big party? Everybody's working for the weekend, right? All our hard work at the gym to pay off? Next episode of Grey's Anatomy, maybe? No, this passage states very clearly that we are waiting for Jesus. Folks, this is the last point that makes us peculiar. As we pointed out here a little tongue-in-cheek, the things the world awaits are fleeting and shallow or downright evil or act as only temporary emotional band-aids. Even good things in and of themselves are nothing. Yet we as believers are waiting for something supremely meaningful. For it says he will come in all his glory the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, we are waiting for something bigger, something better, something outside our normal, outside of our, the realm of our normal human understanding, beyond ordinary earthly pursuits. So what does this have to do with the last two sections? First, Jesus, our Savior, is our joy and our delight. He is the one we are waiting for and the one we are hoping in. All of this is by him and through him and for him, and it will culminate in his return. When he comes, this world and all of its pain, its hardship, its sin, and our weakness will pass away. For when he returns, our transformation will be made complete. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and we will have new bodies. He will welcome us into perfect fellowship with him and his church for all eternity. This is our blessed hope. Blessed hope. It's kind of a funny phrase. In my study, I had sort of missed missed its significance at first. For hope in and of itself is a joyful word. It's a word that already carries the connotation of joy, of greater things to come, something to be realized, something good. So Paul, putting blessed in front of it, he's doubling up on that hope. He's emphasizing it. That tells us something about how we should view the return of Jesus. I've had to examine my own heart, but whether I look forward to Jesus' return or not throughout this process, if I studied this passage, um, do I look forward to Jesus' return or am I distracted by the things of this world? 
is he my blessed hope? And too often he's not. When we see who he is and what he has done, where else could we really place our hope? I hope and I pray that you and I alike would respond by delighting ourselves in fellowshipping with him through his word, through prayer, through worship. We would set our minds on the hope that we have in Christ. Secondly, this time of waiting is our time of training. This is the time of sanctification. This is where Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, continues to work in us and work through us, shaping and molding us to be more like him. For our blessed hope is the means to our training and to the subsequent good works. Our hope fixed on Jesus helps form and shape our manner of godliness. When our hope is in he who is greater than us, he who has done the work for us, deep awe and fear and love and affection wells up in us because he has promised that he will finish what he started in us and in the church. This grows in us a willing obedience. In our first point, salvation, we saw that Jesus appeared to take our place, to redeem us and to purify us. Here we see his promise to reappear. Our training, our sanctification, our transformation will all progress till that day and finally be complete when he descends in all his glory and we see him clearly, clearly, just as he is. So I ask you, do you delight in him now? Do you hope in his return? Do you truly want to see him in all of his glory? This time of waiting is a time of blessed hope and of sanctifying work on our hearts by God. All because of the great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. We are a people waiting for a peculiar arrival and waiting in a peculiarly hopeful manner. Just a few brief words in closing. Peculiar. A people different from their surrounding environment and strange to those that live alongside them. The Cretans were saved and called to walk out their faith in a dramatic fashion by the Apostle Paul. If you call Christ Lord today, you are in the same boat alongside the Cretans. The words of Paul's letter to Titus echo down the hallways of church history to us in 2019 here at Fort William Baptist Church in Thunder Bay. Jesus, our grace, gave himself to an excruciating Roman death, redeeming and purifying us, his people, with a purpose to stand apart from the evil in the world and display his power and his love in our own lives and in the church. We embark on this with the promise that we are not alone in this battle, but that he will actually be working in and through us, that he will return to bring us with him into glory, into an incredibly beautiful eternity. If you don't know him, if you yourself are not a peculiar people, peculiar person, 
He invites you even now to come, to be redeemed and purified, to join the number. Peculiar people, let's go now and live as his people, embracing our three realities, saved, trained, waiting. Holy Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for your majesty, majesty displayed within it. Thank you for making us your people, Lord. Equip us now to go, Lord God, and fill us with your hope. In Jesus' name, amen.